Howdy, y'all! Welcome into South of Scruffy Podcast. I'm Ben Fields. This is my podcast. Thanks for being here. It is good to be back in the United States of America. For those of y'all playing at home, Canada was uh, it was a good time, but you can't beat the USA, baby. I'm glad to be back. I've got a fascinating guest on the show today. Dr. Josh Loebner is here. Josh Loebner is a blind disability advocate, and he's been in the advertising industry for over 20 years now. Josh is the executive director of accessibility and inclusion at Design Sensory. And Josh is also the global head of inclusive design for Wonderman Thompson Advertising Agency out of New York. So Josh was born legally blind, and he has merged his chops in advertising strategy with his other biggest passion, which is championing diversity, equity, and inclusion in advertising. He's a brilliant dude. He's one of the smartest marketing minds I know, and I'm so glad that you guys get to hear this chat. I hope you enjoy it. Here is my chat with the man, Dr. Josh Loebner. We're doing the podcast. But I will unpack my PhD a little bit to, you know, people like, you know, what's your PhD in? What's what's this guy just earned his his degree in? Well, you know, I've been in the ad industry for, for over 20 years and what I saw as I continued to to work with different clients and different teams internally at agencies is that you know, there's this gap when it comes to uh, inclusion and and being able to weave that into naturally into processes into creative mm. into into video into photography into any any campaign and there are there's a lot of research right now that's that's been conducted um, in academia and professionally when it comes to representation of disability like how somebody with disability is seen in a completed ad or campaign, you know, mm-hmm. how long they're in an ad or um, from a time standpoint or, or how they're represented in an ad. Is it is it positive representation of disability or is it maybe stereotypical or kind of a trope of disability from, right. you know, a negative standpoint? And I didn't want to do that. What, what I saw in the gap when it comes to research and knowledge in our space, whether it's in education or professionally, is really ensuring that we can move disability and the conversation for diversity, equity, and inclusion and accessibility further upstream in the creative process so that right when we're sitting down for a creative brief or for, um, you know, coming up with a production um, and, and shot list and, and any other component of creative, that we're thinking about these marginalized groups in a way so that it's not after the fact, so that, you know, we're not wrapped up with um, you know, a digital ad campaign or a, a video, whether it's long form or short form or whatever, and, and kind of we're after the fact saying, oh, yeah, maybe we should put captioning on this, but rather kind of pulling further back and moving further upstream to to start to have those conversations sooner. Because, you know, it's funny about accessibility and inclusion is that um, those components of a campaign can be just as creative. You know, there can be a, a that narrative arc and that story doesn't need to stop when it comes to um, accessible components, whether it's uh, alt tags you're adding to photos on a website or captioning you're putting on a video or audio descriptions you're you're sharing, uh, you know, in a video to help tell, tear, tell the narrative in in so many different ways that mm. each one kind of connects. But I'm I'm a little ahead of the the story about me and my background and how I got into this. But anyway, that, sh- that just unpacks a little bit about what my PhD and my research and my PhD right. was all about. Well, you know, you like you said, you've been in the ad space for a long time. And 
you've kind of seen, I guess you've seen this whole arc of, there's a lot of white, white families in commercials 20 years ago. You start to see the families blend 10 years ago. You start to see, you see uh, more representation now in marketing and ad campaigns. People are, are a lot more uh, sensitive to that and understand that it's not one white mom and one white dad that makes the commercial. Yeah. Yeah, know? exactly. And, and now you see, you see, uh, 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 spectrum stuff people on the spe- on the uh, autism spectrum right. represented in in yeah. television commercials very regularly and i think it's i think it's i think it's fantastic that there's people out there uh that see to making sure that everybody is included yeah yeah definitely i couldn't agree more there there is a ramp in and and we're seeing trending wise more and more people broadly from a diversity, equity, and inclusion standpoint, and in particular towards this conversation, disability being incorporated into advertising. I think the challenge, though, is that that what we're seeing, Ben, is that we're seeing representation on screen, but maybe not so much behind the screen. Mm. The the people who are are crafting and architecting and, and developing all the creative, right? That it's still, you know, it's funny, 20 years ago when I joined the industry, I had a... uh, I was in graduate school and I told one of my friends I'm going into advertising. He said, why would you want to go into advertising? It's just a bunch of blue bloods. And I was like, what's a blue blood? <laughs> <laughs> Old rich white dudes. And um, and so the thing is, the, the, the challenge is we, were, we are seeing opportunities from a representation standpoint in creative portrayals. But the, what I argue is the bigger challenge is building a, a, a stronger, deeper pipeline of young people who have been underrepresented who maybe have disabilities or people of color or the Latinx, Hispanic community, the queer community, getting those young people who are in high school and early in their college career excited about advertising and for the industry to be welcoming to that, mm. to be opening the door and saying, hey, we've got internships, we've got um, early early professional careers to allow you to be able to have mentors and to be able to grow in the industry. And so... Uh, yeah, I applaud everything that's taking place right now, and I and I do want to say that a lot of those pipelines are being crafted, and are and gaps are bring, being bridged. But uh, but more of that's needed, uh, mm. in, in particular within our industry. It's always interesting when you uh, when you try to represent uh, a certain group of people uh, through through advertising or through anything else. It really can feel disingenuous if you don't have those folks represented from an ideation standpoint, from a strategy standpoint, because then you're guessing, you're appropriating <laughs> at some point, right? You're you're trying to you're trying to say here's here's what I think a disabled person wants to see on screen rather than having someone who helps you come up with that strategy, those ideas. Uh, it it feels a lot better I think to include any kind of uh, marginalized group that you can in this to put it your uh, the way that your friend said it, a blue blood industry. Yeah. Really get the people that are in there to help you tell your stories instead of trying to guess and and uh, have a disingenuous uh, uh, disingenuous execution because you really don't have those folks helping you on the backside. You're pandering. That's yeah. You want to be as authentic and genuine. You know, we all want to tell stories, and we don't want to just tell a story to an you know an audience that that doesn't receive it. We want them to be able to be open to whatever we're, we're sharing with them, whether it's, you know, a brand message, whether it's entertainment, um, whether it's a combination of both of those, right, from a you know, branded content standpoint. So 
to do that takes listening. It takes learning. And so whether it's having somebody that's sitting at the table and participating uh, remotely where you're you're hearing from them and and maybe they're on a video screen, but everybody else is in the room and um, maybe they're immunocompromised, but they have a disability and they are also uh, passionate about whatever narrative you're you're mm-hmm. wanting to craft. Let them come into the mix and um, or you know bring in research and, and marketing intelligence to understand that uh, audience with disabilities have voices and have values and have things that they love and things that they hate and mm-hmm. making sure you know all that to to weave into your, you know, whatever story that you're telling. Well, I, I feel like we shouldn't get too far into the podcast without talking about what we were talking about before we started, yeah. which you, you're you legally blind, right? That's Yeah, well, I'm blind and legally blind. So, I, um, <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so there's, so let's go back in the time machine of many, many decades. And um, so just for everybody listening, my name is Joshua Bernard Zachary Loebner. I'm a... Uh, Three namer, four namer. I don't know. It sounds like I don't four know what to you me. Call that. But anyway, so it sounds hyphenated. So how did I, how did I get all this? Yep. So um, so when I was born, uh, I was born three months premature. That's a mm. lot of weeks premature. Yeah. And at the time I was born, uh, I only weighed two and a half pounds. Wow. So super tiny preemie. And the doctors told my parents, they said, "Hey, he's not going to live. There's don't name him." And that was that was what the doctor's viewpoint was. My parents' viewpoint was totally different. They said, look, we're going to give him the strongest, longest name we can. And, <laughs> you know, Joshua Bernard Jackery Loebner, that's that's how I got that moniker. And uh, I was in an incubator, uh, isolated for three months after that. Wow. I had two bouts of pneumonia. I had jaundice. Uh, I went down to just a little over a pound. Um, and so at the time, technology was, was a little different in incubators. And, um, so, uh, yeah, so I was blind from birth. I had retinopathy of prematurity. So, so my left eye fully blind, my right eye, I had better vision then, but it still wasn't great. It was low vision. Now it's, it's legally blind, um, because of a cataract I have on it. Mm. Uh, but, um, so ever since birth, I've been, you know, I've known nothing other than being disabled and, and um, and so that's how I started. And um, uh, fl- fast forward to when I was nine years old, uh, I was at Boy Scout summer camp and I started getting headaches and little kids aren't supposed to get headaches, right? And um, went to the doctor and uh, the doctor said I had a late stage glaucoma in my left eye. I couldn't see out of it, uh, but I was having headaches in it. Mm. And so it was to the point where they needed to remove it. So I've got a glass eye. Do you really? Yeah, left eye is a glass eye. I so, can't tell. Well, you know, my my lid's kind of drooping over I, now. I can't but, tell that um, you're blind by ta- by talking. Yeah, totally. To you, you know? Oh, oh yeah, it's crazy. I, I have a lot of um, y- you know, <laughs> ways that that I it kind of seems like I can see, but <laughs> I can guarantee if that was clear, I would already have knocked that glass over and really? it would have spilled. So yeah, uh, but but so when I was nine, I got a glass eye, and then I was uh, sent to a school for the blind, which mm. I didn't dig so much. Um. Um, but it was okay. And, you know, uh, I got to meet different people. I got to, uh, start to learn Braille, but, um, but I didn't need it. Um, and, uh, I used large print books. So then my story, how did I get to Tennessee? This is just kind of a long narrative. You're, who knows how much you let it out, but anyway. None. 
when I was 12 years old. So we lived in Anaheim, California, by the way. I went to Walt Disney Elementary School. Disneyland was whoa, whoa. five minutes away. So you you this is you were born in California. Born in California. Okay. Lived you know uh, native Californian. Um, it, my my mom was from here in East Tennessee, but she had lived in California m- many years. Mm. So when I was 12 years old, uh, my mom, uh, single mom, um, thank God for her, she, amazing woman. Um, we lived in a very small small house in Southern California, and actually. Um, my sister at that time uh, slept with my mom, um, just as a you know young girl, and 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 um, she tried to wake my mom up one morning, and my mom wouldn't wake up. This was right when nine one one had kind of come on on board in Southern California, or at least for us, we had just learned about it. And so my my sister called our babysitter, who then called nine one one, and uh, I looked out the window. I didn't know any of this. I looked out the window. I saw a police car, a fire truck, and an ambulance. Turns out my mom, and I saw my mom being, you know, taken out on a gurney. My mom had a cerebral aneurysm. And at that time and still today, super small percentage of people survive from cerebral aneurysms. And that's where a blood vessel bursts in your brain. And that mm-hmm. just kind of turns everything haywire. Sure. She had brain surgery. Uh, we had relatives come out to... California from East Tennessee, they, they thought it was going to just be the worst of the worst. And sure. we were going to live with my uncle and aunt maybe. And, and, um, but my mom survived. And so how I got here to East Tennessee was after my mom had her aneurysm and, and was able to re- recover the doctors and, you know, physical therapists mm-hmm. told my mom to move to a slower pace of life. And so where is the slowest pace of life in the United States of America? It's Hancock County, Tennessee. Sounds about right. So I'll buy that. I was 12 years old. My sister was 13. We moved to rural Appalachia. And Where's Hancock County? What's the big city there? Sneedville, Tennessee. Okay. So it's about an hour and a half north of Knoxville. Okay. Um, Melungeons are there, if you've ever heard yeah. of Melungeons. And so it's got its, a bit of mystique. Beautiful, beautiful country, but one of the most impoverished counties in all of the U.S. Really? And so it was like the reverse Beverly Hillbillies for us. Yeah. And Mo- so, moving from moving from uh, L.A. area or Anaheim, you yeah, said? Yeah, or in yeah that, L.A. In that area to, yeah. to East Tennessee. To East Tennessee. And so how I got into advertising was super s- circuitous, right? So... Growing up in Hancock County, man, I loved camping and hiking. And sure. my, my papa and granny had a big farm, creek, mountains, you know, and just all sorts of, it's God's country up there, right? And, sure. And uh, so I knew I was going somewhere to college, probably UT, and I applied. And I had a, several buddies go to UT and and uh, hadn't thought about advertising in any way because a buddy of mine was like, hey, man, do you like camping and hiking? I'm in forestry over on the ag campus, which at that time it was separate from the main campus. And at UT? At UT. And uh, so I was like, okay, I'll go into forestry. So I, I got a, an undergraduate in forestry. I worked for the forest service in Utah up in the Rockies uh, at 10,000 feet, uh, right at snow line, lived in a cabin with no running water, no electricity, and an outhouse. This was for a, a little more than a summer. And just had a blast. Is this there. after college? This was uh, like an internship, like right a- right after my uh, r- right when I my senior year, right? Mm. Oh man, I loved it. I bet it w- the, And uh, your buddy just talked you into forestry, and you and decided my, to do it. And my now my buddy didn't go out there with me, but uh, <laughs> my buddy from Sneedville, he was like, "Hey man, go into forestry. You don't have to sit in the classroom. <laughs> We're just out in the woods all day." And I was like, "Oh, this is great." Now, 
bad part about that, Ben, is I can't see worth anything. And um, luckily, when I worked out in Utah, I was with a crew, a timber crew, where we could walk from stand to stand. And it was pretty cool. I was in charge of the timber timber crew, and we had topo maps. And there was a, and we had um, uh, aerial photography, and this was way before, like, GPS. And so we had... Um, so we had these glasses. I couldn't see through them, but you'd put the glasses on the topo maps, and it made them 3D. And we'd we'd, compa- oh, wow. we'd compare the the topo maps to the uh, aerial photos, and we'd go from several stands had burned, and we went from stand to stand that had burned, and we'd marked which trees could be cut and which trees could be saved. Dude, I loved it. It was it was great. It was a good time. I got so many stories from that. But came back from that, couldn't really do field forestry, uh, but I also did something else crazy. Uh, I went down to New Zealand with another buddy all the way down to the South Island to Dunedin, New Zealand. Um, You know, the Southern Alps are down in Aotearoa, the land of the long white cloud. Uh, I'd I'd never traveled overseas before. I um, worked for a private forest consultant down there. I got lost in the woods because I didn't change the declination on my compass and what's that so you have a little screw on your your compass if you have a nicer compass like a sunto or a garmin or whatever and the the little screw adjusts the the magnetic mag, magnetic north when you go from from different latitudes and longitudes significantly like if you traveled from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere or from north america to europe you would need to change that on your compass ah. to ensure that the magnetic north points to true magnetic magnetic north otherwise if you don't change that minute um you know incrementally it's gonna totally mess you up when you try to orienteer on a map so you didn't you didn't change it before you left the states i didn't change it i forgot when you got to new zealand oh i thought it was like that's right i thought it was like you walked too far and it was and it had weirded out because you hadn't changed it no it was because you were in a different hemisphere i was in a different hemisphere and and i didn't change the declination and i i was using a topo map to orienteer right yeah and i had like an 18 year old the son of the private forest consultant was with me that day and we were mapping some property and he's like dude i don't think we're we're where we should be and i was like oh man oh man and finally we found a logging road and we got out but i thought holy smokes if if it got dark i wouldn't even be able to tell where i was because the constellations are totally different in the night sky down there and i had no idea what they were so thank god we got out and um, then after that i was like yeah, I shouldn't be a forester. So, so can you see constellations yeah. well? No? no, no, I can't. No, could I, you then? Mm, no, okay. probably not. I could see them a little bit, right? But yeah. definitely not now. So has your has your vision gotten worse throughout your life? So my left eye always Gaunt, always, always been, been blind. Right. I haven't seen a single thing out of it. So I can, ever. So really, I see. I don't see three D. I see two D. But my mind interprets things to allow me to kind of see shadows and what depth mm-hmm. should be. But um, you were talking before we started about like what you saw, yeah, yeah, yeah. of me. So, so, so what legal blindness means, uh, at least in the United States, is that so you probably see what twenty twenty, yeah. And so what twenty twenty means that means that you the twenty and twenty means something that's twenty feet away, you can see clearly. Um, if it goes to like twenty thirty or twenty forty or twenty. 300, which is what I have, is that something that you can see clearly 300 feet away, I would have to get 20 feet up to to see. Mm. So, and that's 
corrected. So gotcha. twenty three hundred is my vision with my glasses on, mm. which is super crappy. Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> it's it's not great, right? Yeah. But that's okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, I like to tell people uh, I'm fully blind in one eye, legally blind in the the other, but clearly see the best in everyone. I love it. Uh, so, uh, what do you see? What do you see? In uh, we're six feet apart right now. What do you What do you see? Yeah, yeah. So, so Ben, like. Sorry, I'll get closer to the mic. So, okay. so I see you, and I know you're a person. Like, uh, organic things are a bit trickier for me to to figure out. You know, when when I see just very linear geometric shapes, I can I can kind of tell those a little bit better. Like, there's a white rectangle behind you. I guess those mm-hmm. are those are for lighting. Maybe yeah, those are lights. Yeah. And um, but when it comes to organic things, I really have to kind of concentrate. But for humans, you know, I've seen people my whole life, so I kind of know they're people. Like I know you're a person. Like I can see your shoulders, and you have a gray outfit on. I can tell that you have hands, but I can't see the you know your di- single digits. Mm-hmm. And I can't really see people's faces anymore unless I get super close. Mm. So like, I know you've got, um, you know, Caucasian, you know, a lighter colored skin mm-hmm. and you may have some some scruff on and you have sunglasses and a hat, but I can't really see people's uh, like eyes and nose and mouth. And what what are we, uh, six feet apart maybe? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I can't see your, I can't see your face. And so it's funny, whenever I'm in a meeting, like I can't tell if people are, or I'm, given a presentation or whatever, I can't ever tell if people are like looking at me or looking down at their phones or if they're smiling or not happy. Um, well, I feel like so yeah. much of, of like, I feel like so much of what I do in a conversation with people mm-hmm. is read their face and read yeah. how they're reacting to right. what I'm saying. Right. So how do you deal with that? Yeah. This, so it's your voice, right? So <laughs> really? now, now my intonate, now I have to, understand intonations and inflections mm. from from voices so much more so than than faces like if i get super close to somebody's face i can tell like i can get up to my kids faces or my wife's but really if i got as close to other people as i did to my wife or kids people would be like dude you're close talking <laughs> you're getting way too that is i'm invading people's personal space right so you have you have i guess just had to uh, adapt to being super adept at reading voices and intonation. That's exactly right. Now, you know, there are ways to circumnavigate that. What I will say is that um, whenever I work remotely and we're all in Zoom, I can kind of get close enough to see people's faces if there's oh, they're, yeah. if they're all in Zoom, kind of, not, not well, the best. Well, that's a little bit of an advantage, huh? A little bit. But then what else I like to do if I want to start to see visual cues from other people is, and I know we can't do that here because of the mic situation, but I would sit, I would, there's a, there's another chair by Ben. So I would sit by uh, directly beside you okay. and try to have, you know, more of an intimate conversation gotcha. as opposed to this kind of. Uh, what I perceive is super far away. Yeah. But yeah, I, I can't really see, I can't, I can no longer judge people by their appearances or their, you know, if they're, if they're jiving with what I'm saying, right. saying or not. And so, and so how I try to, you know, you know, if I'm giving a presentation or I'm just having a conversation, what I try to do is take the pulse by asking questions or pausing to hear from other people mm. to know if, um, you know, uh, if things are moving where they need to, or or we need to pivot, or how can we unpack things further? So yeah, right. so so it's through voice now, pretty much. 
That's pretty fantastic. Yeah. I mean, you always hear, you always hear, uh, you know, and I don't know if this is true or not. You'd have to tell me. You always, people say that, you know, if uh, one of your senses, uh, if you have a deficiency in one of your senses, then your other ones become more attuned uh, because you have to, because you have to use them more or what, whatever it is, you have, because you have to rely on them more. But that sounds like a very real world application of what I've heard in my whole life about people uh, who, who lose a sense it, of some sort. It, it, it may be. It may be. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, 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 all right. So to back up, so I was okay. in forestry, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. And I was yeah. here in Tennessee. I didn't want to do forestry anymore. I knew my vision wasn't what it needed to be to like enjoy the life of an outdoorsman. But I still really enjoy camping and hiking. Yeah, camping, yeah. maybe not hiking so much camping. If there's anybody that goes hiking who's listening that likes to hike with blind people, give me a shout. <laughs> um, for serious. Um, but uh, so I had a um, I had a friend in New York um, that worked at Conan Wolf Public Relations, and they were a strategist. They they did uh, strengths, weaknesses, and opportunities and threats for mm. brands and for clients. And the I was up SWOT analysis. SWOT analysis. And I was up there, and they were like, you know what? I'm going to do this. I do this for companies. I'm going to do this for you. Um, and uh, so she did, and she's like, I don't think you need to be in forestry. Have you ever thought about advertising? And I'm like, no. So I went back here, um, and luckily I got my college. Uh, supported tuition supported through the state of Tennessee vocational rehabilitation for my undergraduate. And they said, we'll help you with your graduate degree if you're able to get a job in a large city with mass transit where you can sit at a desk. I'm like, okay. So I took a career aptitude test and it said, hmm, maybe advertising. So I talked to the advertising department and this was in the late 90s and um, talked with Dr. Eric Haley and he said, hey, take a class, see if you like it. I loved it. I loved. I'm like, why didn't I do this before? And, I mean, and where was that? You here, really? U, uh, the University of Tennessee. Okay. So uh, I got my master's degree in advertising, and after that, I I just knew this was for me. I loved I loved advertising. I loved being able to strategically think about audiences, right, and and come up with concepts that would connect with them, and and be able to differentiate and create unique selling propositions. And I love advertising, right? Advertising. Look, for people who are who are downing advertising and say, oh, it's just advertising. Advertising, I would argue, is one of the most powerful um, pieces of communi communications tools that are out there. Like, if it wasn't for advertising, what movies would we know to go see? What television shows would we watch? And, you know, and I know we've evolved to streaming services, but hey, uh, Discovery Plus, Apple Plus, they spend millions, if not billions, on advertising to guide people to their streaming platforms, you know. Coke, Pepsi, uh, vitamin water, you know, whatever, any Ford, Chevrolet, any brand, any service, advertising is super powerful. And it can be powerful in a positive way or a negative way. I mean, I'll know? take it a step further. I think advertising is the is one of the most powerful things on planet Earth because without it, Facebook wouldn't have a way to monetize what they're doing. <laughs> you Yes. <laughs> Exactly right. Facebook, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. That right? is the currency of Google. So much of the of of all of these of the biggest companies in the world, the currency, their currency is attention, and that's what they're selling, and that's what they're trading on is other people's attention. And advertising is at the center of that. That's exactly. And, and so I, th you know, that was that was awesome. I loved it. <laughs> and so I got a quote unquote one way ticket to New York City. I didn't have a job. Did a lot of door knocking. Um, 
I had a first gig at Young and Rubicam Advertising. Now it's VML Y&R, but back then it was called Young and Rubicam. They hadn't merged yet. This was this was even they were independent. It was before uh, WPP had acquired them. Are they in Manhattan? They're they they're a global network. But it, hey, I'm a madman. At that time, they were at 285 Madison Avenue. There so you go. Uh, yeah, I worked on Madison Avenue. The, you know and. <laughs> Uh, they are not there anymore. Uh, is that what Mad Men was? Madison Ma- Avenue? Mad Men, Madison Avenue. I didn't yeah. even think about oh, it. Yeah. What the hell? What <laughs> Prob- am I doing, man? Probably a little little mad too. But, got, uh, yeah. but yeah, Madison, I worked on Madison Avenue. Super loved it. Um, had some amazing accounts there I worked on. And I wasn't focusing on disability inclusion back yeah, then. Yeah, what were you doing at I the was, time? I was, you know, account management, account planning, kind of strategic components of- And when is this? Uh, this is- uh, 2000s? Late 90s. Late, late 90s. Late okay. 90s. And uh, like 90, 99, right? Okay. 99, I was at Young and Rubicam. So the internet is kind of a thing, but not really a tool that we're using to conduct business on a daily basis? That's or? exactly right. Oh, yeah. man. And this is super old school. They were just phasing out- <laughs> they were just phasing out airbrushing, <laughs> which is crazy. Um, and nobody was using airbrushing back then, but they still had, like, you could open a, a room and see all the tools that they literally had airbrushes to... Fo- to For the photos. For photos, yeah. But they weren't doing... They, they'd phased it out a couple of years before me. They are starting to use Photoshop? They were starting to use... <laughs> yeah, they were using Photoshop. But uh, so I was at Young and Rubicam, loved it, loved the city, but I wanted to work at a a, a smaller boutique shop. And so then I... Because there were like 2,000 people in my office and it was just... That's a big agency. It was a big agency. <laughs> and so I jumped from Young and Rubicam to... At that time, they were they were called Edelman Public Relations. Now they're just Edelman. But I worked for a boutique ad agency called Blue Worldwide which was an issues and advocacy agency. They did a lot of um, uh, non-governmental campaign initiatives like uh, lobby initiatives. We worked for, well, Monsanto was one of our clients, you know, Mm. for better or worse, Um, uh, but had an amazing time there because it was was interesting. Young Rubicam was purely advertising, whereas Blue Worldwide was owned by a multinational public relations firm. And so I got to see this other side of marketing and advertising and how PR was starting to weave its way into, and this was before social media, but it was still interesting to see how public relations was weaving its way into, uh, you know, changing the minds of consumers and, and perception and, and persuasion. Then 9-11 happened. And um, after 9-11, uh, y- you know, my office was at uh, 110 Duane Street, which was about two or three blocks away. Now, I was not at that office. I was still at my apartment, but... On September 11th? On September 11th, but it was crazy, and it was... You're close by? Man, I'll tell you what, um, and, and it's hindsight's... <laughs> even for me, hindsight's 2020, <laughs> which is crazy. But <laughs> but here's what's nuts, Ben, is that nobody ever thinks... No, nobody has... Rarely do people have end-of-the-world feelings, but on 9-11... When I heard fighter jets scrambling over Manhattan Island and and we witnessed the Twin Towers falling, like many, many people thought it was World War III. I went into a church um, with my my fiance at that time, went into a church and um, people were praying and saying Latin prayers. It was just, I I thought my life was over. Like I thought World War III had happened and that was it. You know, and, and slowly but surely, you know, we realized that that wasn't the case, but it took hours to to call my mom uh, because yeah, probably because you couldn't get through. That's well, the the cell towers and the telephone towers were on top of the 
Trade Center, which uh-huh. had just collapsed, which yeah. was nuts. And so I finally got a hold of my mom, who lives in Sneedville, Tennessee, right? <laughs> and she's like, I don't care what you do. If you have to start hitchhiking or you just start walking or catch a bus, you come back here to t- Sneedville, Tennessee. Yeah. No, I didn't. But uh, but a couple of years later, that's so that's full circle how I came back here to uh, Knoxville was after 9-11. Um, again, my fiance at the time, uh, Food Network had just... Uh, Started with HGTV, yeah. and so she was able to enter office everything from her New York office down to here, and um, we divorced a few years after that. But uh, so that was that was your wife or your fiance at the time. Fiance and wife at that time we worked moved, for Food Network in New worked York. Worked for Food Network in okay, New York, gotcha. and so I came down here and worked at a couple of uh, boutique shops before before Design Sensory, yeah. um, and been at Design Sensory for twelve years. So when you, w- during nine eleven, I, I remember it was let's see, I guess the twenty. 20- 20 year anniversary was last year, last mm-hmm. September 11th. I went back and I, like, leading up a couple of weeks leading up to it, I watched all the documentaries I could find on 9 11 and just to kind of relive it because I was in high school when it happened. And I have memories of it just like everybody does, but you don't really, you know, you start to lose. It gets, it gets a little fuzzy over the years. But I, I, something I didn't realize is that when the first tower got hit, nobody really knew what was going on. Like it was just like some, you know, some guy flying a plane and and ran in, ran into the tower. Oh no, there's been a terrible accident. Yeah. But then when the second plane hit, that's when it, that's when the America is under attack kind of narrative started. Right. It was, it was super crazy. And, and I will say this, and here's how we can swing it back to the conversation back to advertising is that, um, being in the ad industry, you know, we just talked about how it's, it's a powerful industry, but also it's not, um, you know, you typically you're not dealing with life and death in advertising and video production or what have you. But and, and so I remember directly after 9-11, it seemed like our jobs were just uh, I don't want to say meaningless, but it, it, it didn't seem like there was a worth to doing what we did, at least for a few weeks. You know, it was like, man, what's it all for? What, yeah, <laughs> what's it all for? Yeah. But but so what is it all for? And so. So 9-11 happened, came here, and and I realized as I was growing into my career and as and uh, I've always been um, pretty pretty vocal about my disability, and I have disability pride, and I celebrate my disability. Like, I don't ever want to have pity or, or, or the negative side of disability. Like, hey, I've always been disabled. This is, this is part of me. This is who I am. You know, uh, my kids definitely don't look at me negatively because of my disability. I'm just their dad. And I would hope everybody else does because I am super happy in my own skin. But what I saw is that there, when it came to representation um, and visibility of disability was that there was, there was not a lot of it in advertising. And so in 2011, uh, I started a blog called advertisinganddisability.com. And I wrote stories that I felt like, and I interviewed people um, that I felt like weren't being heard in traditional trade media, like Ad Age or Ad Week or Campaign Magazine or The Drum. You feel like they weren't represented on the screen or in print or you know, it's, what? It, you know, it's interesting, Ben. To an extent, they were, you know, during the Paralympics, yes, or mm. maybe other tentpole media moments, the Super Bowl or the Oscars. Um, there would be these rare moments where disability would be seen and those trade magazines would cover it, but they would cover it in a way that, that was like, oh my gosh, there's a disabled person in an ad. Look at this. This is crazy. And um, it would be too sensationalistic, I would argue, from an editorial coverage standpoint. And what I wanted to do was unpack a little bit deeper 
what it meant to incorporate disability and how to do it from a best practices standpoint. So I started that that blog and I continued to kind of have a drumbeat of um, starting to be a little bit more of a voice for disability inclusion in advertising. And long story short, uh, I'm a contributing writer now for Adweek where I get to help be able to share more of a voice for disability inclusion uh, in the industry through you know, these trade publications, these these trade media outlets. Um, I serve on Adweek's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Council. Um, and I'm a subject expert. I was just interviewed by um, Morning Brew, if you're familiar with that. Uh, it's, it's like a marketing uh, media outlet mm. about um, something pretty cool. Havas Advertising Agency, they created a, um, they created an app for iPads that eventually will hopefully translate to iPhones and and other mobile devices that for people with Parkinson's disease that have tremors, the app, uh, when you go into your internet provider, uh, your internet browser, um, it, it it makes the screen stable. It'll correct so it? It'll correct it. So like a steady cam for your screen? Like That's exactly right. Yeah. You, yes. Of, yes. You should, great analogy. Like a steady cam for your screen. So, um, so I was you know, um, that's fantastic. I was uh, the subject expert for that for yeah, that um, sure for that news outlet. That reporter reached out to me, so, which is super great now. Um, but I shouldn't be the only person they reach out to, and I wouldn't say I am the only person. Right. But there are very few people in the industry that uh, vocalize and try to champion disability inclusion. And but I'm I'm glad to be one of them. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of other marginalized groups that have representation. Uh, in the advertising space, but it seems like disabilities is not one of those things that you think of when you think of marginalized groups or or folks who aren't necessarily proportionally represented in advertising or otherwise. And so it, it you're the only person that that I know that that is even in this space. So you have to be like somewhat of a thought leader in the space, and people have to be noticing. Yeah, they are, which is super cool, and and I'm totally excited about it. And th- there's so much positive momentum, Ben. But what I do want to say is, you know, just to kind of open the the window or or open the door to to listeners and to you is that a uh, lot of a lot of major brands are creating space and places and roles for people with disabilities. So, for example, Twitter has a global uh, accessibility director. Um, Walmart has a global accessibility director, and and so a lot of these major brands now are creating what are known as accessibility centers of excellence, where they're kind of this this hub of knowledge when it comes to inclusive design, when it comes to accessibility, uh, when it comes to representation of people with disabilities, so that if there's a, a web team working on, you know, updating a website or a landing page, or there's a, a video production arm that's doing, a, you know, a short form series for the brand, like... All these different uh, entities can can get insights and information from this accessibility center of excellence and these chief accessibility officers and inclusive design officers to really start to thoroughly create a network of of inclusion throughout all brand touch points. And so, I'm super proud to say that. Yep, yeah, I'm I'm a thought leader and, and proud of that. Um, and it's taken a lot of commitment and you know a lot of hustle um, and focus on my part. Um, but there are others out there too, and hopefully. Um, and they're, they're getting a lot of visibility and traction as well. That hasn't always been your focus, though, in advertising, has it? You haven't always leveraged your uh, unique qualification in the disability yeah. world. You've just you've you've worked in advertising just like anybody else, right? And and not even focused on that part. 
That's exactly right. Yeah. So, so my background, I'm a strategist, so a brand strategist. And really what that means is just understanding kind of the, uh, the ins and outs of how we can navigate um, competitors, how we can navigate um, the category itself, uh, and the consumers and those that aren't consumers, and, uh, whether it's from uh, initial marketing intelligence, uh, campaign research, developing creative briefs, uh, understanding our audiences, understanding uh, what's working and not working in a campaign to mm. ensure that we can we can move and pivot where we need to to as positively um, impact sales to impact engagement as possible. So yeah, I'm, I I love being a strategist and, and and that said, from my perspective, it really adds a layer of uh, connectivity and, and um, the the role of not just uh, being a disability advocate, but being a disability advocate with within a strategy perspective in advertising is, I would argue, critical because you know you could have a disability advocate that just simply says we need more people with disabilities in advertising. But as a strategist, I have that um, uh, that intelligence, hopefully, to be able to to weave that advocacy in in a way that makes it not only authentic but impactful to the campaign itself, mm. right? Mm. In, in a way that it's not just we're not just slapping inclusion in it but we're we're incorporating inclusion in a way that we're listening to the consumers we're we're strategically and mindfully incorporating disability in a positive way mm. within a within the brand focus when did you decide that you wanted to incorporate this knowledge and this this um, viewpoint that you have this this unique viewpoint that you're able to take on the industry when did you decide that you wanted to incorporate it into the work that you're already doing as a strategist so so probably 2011 when I started the the blog advertising and disability that mm -hmm. was that was kind of nascent emergent right. uh, pathway of, Toe of, in the to, water. of doing that I started to do that uh, and then in 20 17, I started my PhD program at Clemson University. Go Tigers. Um, but I'm also a Vol, so yeah, go, go Vols. So yeah. they're two different oranges, right? <laughs> uh, and purple at Clemson, which is my favorite color. Um, and so 2017, I started my uh, my move into academia, where I had one foot in, in uh, academia and the other foot professionally. Um, and then, you know, across that, that whole time, I've been involved in professional industry organizations, the American Advertising Federation, where right now I serve nationally uh, on, within the Mosaic Council. Um, and the Mosaic Council is the advertising industry's kind of premier think tank when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And so uh, through that, I have a voice of how can, what can we do industry-wise to be able to, to move uh, disability inclusion and, and broadly diversity, equity, and inclusion further into the core of of what we do to celebrate um, as many people as possible. So I remember when I when I heard you were going back to school, and I was like, "What? This guy's already super successful. What more could he possibly be trying to tackle?" And it's it sounds like you have um, just kind of focused even more in on what on on what you were looking to do just kind of fine-tuning every little bit and and coming down to this small small part of the industry that you're the uh, a leading expert in you know it's 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 interesting so the the further you dig down into a subject right ben you start to find that it, it just becomes this rabbit hole of so much more to explore and and what i found at the academic level and, and here's here's this um challenging separation right now um, uh, between the professional world and the academic world, especially within advertising, marketing, branding, and, and 
media and entertainment at large, you could say, is that there are so many students that are they're wanting to come into our profession, right? So many people want to be uh, yeah. directors it's and so producers. Glamorous, right? <laughs> it's so glamorous. Uh, and, and, you know, parts of it are, right? Sure. I mean, it's amazing to be on the tip of the spear of creativity and to be able to wield that, again, that power to be able to capture images that compel people to, to do things and to make them wonderfully immersive. I, I love sure. this industry. But the challenge is that um, while I have had so many wonderful opportunities to speak uh, across this country and globally um, on diversity, equity, inclusion, disability, inclusive design, and accessibility, what I've seen is that um, th there's a knowledge gap, right? Why, why am I having to, to educate and guide professionals when in fact, shouldn't it start earlier? Right. Shouldn't this knowledge be sure. gained uh, by students who are moving into right. this profession. Shouldn't it, shouldn't it right? be in the in the elementary school class book instead of a master's class or, or a that, master's, uh, yeah. That's exactly right. And so here's a crazy thing. It, it doesn't matter what university course you take, uh, whether you're Harvard or the University of Tennessee or to community college, every, every course has a syllabus, right? Mm -hmm. And each syllabus has two policy directives in it. One policy focuses on diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is necessary and needed that... Um, there will be an equitable class, right? Um, diversity should be welcomed within the classroom from a student perspective and from a faculty perspective. There's also an accessibility policy within the course that the course being taught should be accessible to all students so that if there's a, a blind uh, student that's participating or a deaf student that they can equitably uh, and accessibly be able to gain as much knowledge in that course. But here's the challenge. Right now, what we're seeing in particular within media and entertainment and advertising courses and video courses, what have you, is that those are just policies. They're not being translated to the course materials as mm. readily as they should be so that right. the, so there's no readings. Yeah, it's part of the framework, but it's not part of the curriculum. It, that's a, you, you're, you hit the nail on the head. And so, sorry, I hit the microphone. So <laughs> so um, that's what's needed. And so that's, that's where I, I feel like parts of my PhD research could start to be able to be elevated into course materials, into course readings, um, to allow faculty to dig a little deeper. Um, but I'm just one guy, right? And so yeah. ho hopefully more people, and there are more people are focusing on uh, disability and inclusive design and accessibility and, and all marginalized groups in, um, in college courses to be able to get those young people to hopefully have just a, a seed of knowledge so that once they get in, you know, they don't need to know everything and anything, uh, you know, about about anything when they move into the professional world. But if they at least have some semblance of insight about, oh, yeah, diversity, equity and inclusion is important and disability is um, part of that. And it's something that I need to be mindful of. And I don't have all the answers, but at least, you know, if I'm um, talking about a creative project, maybe that's something that if nobody else brings up, and I know I'm early in my career, but maybe I could bring it up. Mm. So, um, so hopefully more of that can happen. Now, I, I'm not, um, even though I'm, uh, let's see, by the time this airs, I will have walked across the stage with my cap and gown and <laughs> probably, you know, which is just a couple of weeks from now. But, uh, uh, so I'm a doctor, but, but I'm not going to, I'm not going into academia yet. Um, if there's anybody, uh, you know, there are a few people out there that I may collaborate with on some some academic research, maybe some papers. Um, 
maybe support from developing a, a, a syllabus, a course. But um, but I'm not diving headfirst into the, that yet. I'm staying in the industry and and um, looking forward to you know the next decade or two still being in uh, as a professional industry person. <laughs> yeah. What are some What are some of the other groups? I mean, you you have, uh, I guess, your your uh, condition with your vision has has given you this passion for accessibility and yep. this, and you know, been able to marry it with your with your passion for advertising. But what are some other groups that struggle with accessibility? That's a, that's a great question, and you know, if we just say the word disability, and and hey, for all listeners, I love the word disability. I'm proud to be a disabled person, just like. Uh, people of color are, are proud to be people of color, or a queer person is is pr- is proud to celebrate their, right. their who they are as a queer person, um, and so I celebrate my disability um, every July. July in America, in the United States, is Disability Pride Month. You know, mm. we've got June coming up as uh, which celebrates the LGBTQ plus community um, as Pride Month. Pride Month in July uh, helps to celebrate the the anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed in the early 90s um, primarily as an anti-discrimination act Mm. because people with disabilities were being discriminated against when it came to to employment, when it came to education, higher education. Um, And so going back to talking about, you know, what are some other disabilities here in the state of Tennessee? Just a few numbers. There are a million people in the state of Tennessee that have some type of disability. Out of seven million. Yes. Right. Yeah, that's that's a that's a right. large 15%, amount. Fifteen percent. Uh, in the U.S., yeah. uh, sixty million people have a disability. Globally, over one billion people have a disability, and so of those disabilities, you know, for listeners, I'm I'm blind and I have low vision. Um, there are other disabilities here in Knoxville. We have the Tennessee School for the Deaf, and that's mm-hmm. for students who are. Um, deaf or hard of hearing. Um, then there's blind deaf where people could either be fully blind or partially blind and be fully deaf or hard of hearing. So, um, and then there's mobility disabilities where individuals may have, um, limb differences, um, and may use a wheelchair or, um, be an amputee and have, um, uh, you know, a prosthetic limb. Um, and then there's, other disabilities, uh, intellectual and developmental disabilities, uh, Down syndrome, uh, and then there's neurodiversity, uh, which includes autism. Um, dyslexia falls under that category mm. as well. So, disability, when we, when um, maybe non-disabled people think of disability, oftentimes we see the disability symbol uh, in parking lots, right? That blue yeah. and white symbol at accessible parking spaces, mm-hmm. you know, formally and to an extent sometimes now referred to as handicapped spaces. Mm-hmm. They're, they're actually accessible parking spaces. They're not, hand, you know, if it was a handicap space, that would mean it would be more challenging to get into, but it's actually <laughs> an accessible space allowing, ex, allowing accessibility. But anyway, we see that symbol of somebody in a wheelchair and, and, and for many people, that's what we think of when we think of disability. Mm. But disability is physical. It it could be mental. Um, and so disability has expanded over the years. And we can think of other minority groups, you know, the LGBTQ plus uh, community and how the considerations for, for that minority group have expanded, right? Um, and, and so... That's what I'm trying to, yeah. to to compare this to right. because it seems yeah. like we're going through this. There's this 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 groundswell of acceptance for marginalized groups, and it seems like people right now are people are 
ripe to be accepting of of groups that have been marginalized before. And people like me are ready to learn about who have we been overlooking. That's right. And, and that's a, it's, we, we are at a super wonderful crossroads right now, Ben, where we can say, hey, we're accepting and we're ready to learn. And, and that's really the, the, the key message here is that if you want to learn, there are so many opportunities to learn how to uh, weave in disability inclusion or, or other minority groups in a way that, that makes sense within branding and marketing and advertising. And I don't know how many of your listeners are, uh, you know, within the marketing or, or communication space, but um, but really, if, if you, if you want to learn more about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and uh, really look around your, your office space, and are there people that represent marginalized groups that could mm. start conversations? And if there aren't, you know, that's an opportunity to recognize that gap and find ways to be able to bring those people into conversations, into the creative process, whether it's uh, subcontracting, whether it's partnering with other groups, whether it's uh, just calling somebody like me to learn a little bit more about uh, equitably bringing uh, marginalized groups into a creative process. What are some mistakes, whether it's nomenclature or behavior that people make to not include uh, disabled individuals? Yeah. So, my, I would think nomenclature would be a big part of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and we can think of language. You know, language is super important, right? Language is powerful for better and worse, especially in our industry. And even if it's just in meetings and conversations mm-hmm. that are prior to any any um, creative campaign that's seen by consumers, right? It's just how are we having dialogue right. and meetings? How do we interact? And are we are we saying the right thing and it, treating every or uh, representing everybody with the way that we're or making a comfortable space with the language that we're using? That's exactly right. And so I'll just touch on the you know the word disability again. I'm super proud to be disabled, and so handicapped is a little bit of an anachronism where it's not being used as often as it was in the past. Right. And so handicap, you know, apocryphally. It, uh, people have considered that that was came about by maybe people who were beggars in the street where they had their caps in their hand and really? they, were, they were begging for money because people wouldn't hire them. They had their and, cap in their hand. Yeah. And so somehow that, that got reinterpreted really? as a handicap. Now, that's, who knows if that's true or who not? Who knows if that's true or not? <laughs> but um, handicap is a term that we want to start to move away from. Okay. Um, you know, we've all heard about the N word, right? We don't yeah. say the N word when it comes to people of color. There's the R word now. We don't say the R word. There have been right. campaigns about it. Right. Um, and, and so we want to be able to move down a path towards inclusive and welcoming language. And I will say, a shout out to the uh, National Center on Disability and Journalism. Um, the, if you just type in those words, they have um, that or that nonprofit organization has a style guide. Uh, for reporters, for people in the communication industry that breaks down what words are positive to Mm. say and what words maybe you should avoid. Um, And and so... um, That's great. I mean, that's a a super uh, useful resource. What's it called again? The The, NSDJ? Yeah, the National Center on Journalism and Disability, or maybe it's the National Center on Disability and Journalism. But anyway, if you type those words in, uh, whichever way, you'll be able to go to their website and they have a style guide. The United Nations, by the way, has a style guide. Really? On, if you typed in United Nations Disability Language Style Guide, you would be able to find a style guide um, that they deem um, appropriate and they share words that are uh, more positive or other words to avoid. Also, Google does. If, you t- if Google Marketing in- Inclusion for All Disability, type mm. in those words in a search engine, you're going to come to... Um, 
insights and tips that will show you how to incorporate more positive words as opposed to negative. But yeah, language is important. And and so to ensure that the language that you're using is is optimal, you want to look at the style guides. But also, if you have on-screen talent that has a disability, you want to talk with them about the language that they're most comfortable with. Um, but also, you want to talk with your brand and make sure that the brand is comfortable with the language and, and that they don't uh, kind of seesaw on which language to use and not use. You want it to be consistent across uh, all touch points. So that, you know, that's mm. one mistake maybe where you might use the maybe inappropriate language. You don't want to do that. So you want to ensure that you use the right language. You want to start the creative process. You want to have a creative brief that incorporates questions and, and facts and insights about disability inclusion. Um, if you're doing video production, Ben, you want to talk about, and if you have a written script, right? And you, ha if you have a shot list, consider how audio descriptions can be incorporated. And for listeners who may be unfamiliar with an audio description, mm -hmm. an audio description um, describes everything in a scene that, if you closed your eyes, you would you wouldn't know what's there. It helps to describe it in a very succinct way. Um, and so, you want to start that process right at the shot list stage. Like, how can you describe these images to somebody who maybe can't see the video? Yeah. So, what is the use case for that? What, how does the, how does uh, a, a person who's blind take in those take in those audio descriptions? Oh man. So, um, on all streaming services, Apple Plus, Disney Plus, Netflix, um, you can select within your preferences. Uh, audio descriptions or no audio descriptions or captions or no captions. And that allows you to be able to, um, for me to hear those when I watch movies, certain movies, which is super awesome because I can't see my TV anymore. And, I, and my kids don't want me to keep asking, what's going on? What are they yeah. doing? What am I seeing? Um, so audio descriptions are super great in long form video, but also short form video. There are certain commercials. MasterCard just came out with a commercial where they were introducing their touch cards, which have... Um, these notches cut out of them to allow people with low vision or blindness to be able to easily discern the, their credit card versus other cards in their wallet. It just has a little divot cut out. Yeah. And they had an audio description playing in that commercial of to course they did. <laughs> allow people who are blind or low vision to yeah. be able to see it. Comcast has had an audio description. Um, but there's also um, secondary. Uh, have you ever heard of SAP? SAP stands for secondary... Secondary audio programming, I mm -hmm. believe. Yeah, um, where, and, where, where you, you you press it and everything's in Spanish after that, right? Everything's in Spanish, <laughs> or you can press it and, and it, it has, um, you can uh, opt for captions on your screen and you right. can also opt for audio descriptions um, on certain programming. So, so how does the audio description work when you're also, when you also have dialogue happening? And, and so that's where, that's where, um, it really needs to be planned out, right? It yeah. can't just be after the fact. You have to say, "All right, we we want to be equitable in this in this video shoot. We want to incorporate audio descriptions, and you really just have to be mindful of pauses and understand how to effectively be able to allow for breaks in the in the dialogue and in the show mm. to be able to tee up certain things. Really, uh, that makes good sense. Yeah, definitely to have yeah. just those pauses to allow for some type of vocalization mm -hmm. or audio when when the dialogue is not happening. Didn't uh, man? I, I could be wrong about this, but didn't someone who was deaf or blind just win? Uh, uh, win one of the big awards, an Academy Award or a yeah, Grammy? Or, yeah, or, or, Coda. Right, which yeah. stands for a child of a deaf adult, 
um, Coda, the movie, just won uh, won two Oscars, right? Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, you know, it's interesting, Ben. We're seeing media, media and entertainment film in particular embracing disability inclusion in significant and powerful ways. AMC now have AMC theaters now have um, open captioning on a certain percentage of their screens. That's great. All the time. And used to there was these clunky technology devices that you had to get at the concession stand prior to a movie if you were deaf or hard of hearing and you wanted to see captions and you had to put it in front of your face and it was just it was broken a lot of the time. Yeah. But now open captions are on the screen, boom. Anybody could see it. Man, I keep the subtitles on when I watch TV. Uh, just because it helps. <laughs> it helps hammer it home. It helps hammer it home. And, and statistics show um, that it's validated uh, user engagement for advertising on mobile devices to have captioning on. Um, oh, because man. so many people have their volume down on their phones. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, do you remember uh, What the Bleep Do We Know? Do you know that movie? Mm-mm. You should check it out. It's got the the that actress in it who's deaf. And she's fantastic. Oh, and okay. they just, it's like... It's it's one of those uh, films where they could have they could have easily they could have easily cast right. a person who could hear yeah and they didn't they cast a deaf person but it was it it's seemingly plug and play oh, okay because she's such a good actress yeah, did yeah such a great job yeah but it was like it, it's one of those examples of where uh, it just it it didn't matter that she was deaf it was just she was she was treated just like anybody else was on the screen they didn't make a big deal about it it, it wasn't yeah. a meta thing you know and that's exactly right and so so again it goes kind of back to my blog like when when adweek and the drum were kind of sensationalizing disability in their editorial coverage mm. or when you know variety or the hollywood reporter were were elevating disability in a weird way we just want we just want to be accepted like anybody right. else and and that comes to job employment right and you mentioned you know not to call you out on it ben but you mentioned that one actress who's deaf can you not say that well well, well no what i what i'm sharing is that there are a lot of deaf actors and actresses right mm. and so I, I i don't know which one you're talking about right and so the thing to consider is that um there may be a handful right now, and there may be one or two actresses that, that stand out. Uh, you know, Marley Maitland won the Oscar in the '80s as, as a deaf actress, and it may have been her. It may have been her. But, but we want to be um, seen as just hey, given that opportunity to be an actor, or an actress, or a strategist, or a videographer, uh, in, in the same way as other people. Um, and you know, we can look back to. Um, barriers and challenges that were in place for other minority groups, people of color, um, Jews, uh, when it came to the, people, Jews weren't hired in the advertising industry and for many, 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 there was a lot of exclusion. Really? Um, people of color, Hispanics, Latinos, and the queer community. And and while there are still many bridges to cross, um, Many in those minority groups have started to make inroads, and people with disabilities have as well. And all of us, you know, regardless of whichever group is underrepresented, we just want to be, um, you know, we, we want to be seen as for the, for what we can bring to the table uh, from a skills set um, and from uh, from our creativity in a way that hopefully is as as equitable uh, as others. Man, it's it, it, it's a world that people don't think about, me included. And had I, and, and if I didn't know you, I wouldn't I wouldn't be I wouldn't be familiar with you know accessibility inclusion. 
uh, equity, diversity, all that kind of stuff. I wouldn't be, fam- I wouldn't even think about that include being uh, present in the advertising space. But because of you, I think working at Design Sensory and being up on, you know, being being a voice when we're coming up with ideation when we're doing these, it has, or when we're when we're making these spots over the last few years, you always have had a little bit of a touch on everything that we've done because we have your. Uh, but because we have, rep- you have representation. You are you are wanting to make sure that accessibility is represented in everything that we do, and it's been eye opening, and it seems like it's becoming a little more ubiquitous, <laughs> as well. It, it is, and you know, you you said something that's uh, it's uh, pretty salient in that um, it it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. Sometimes disability has been more often than not, the forgotten mm-hmm. uh, minority group. And so, you know, lots of brands, lots of companies have been thinking about um, other minority groups in a way that disability sometimes gets forgotten. But it, disability needs people to have that drumbeat, to be able to be that voice. And so I'm thankful to have been that voice and, and to continue to be that voice. And, you know, hey, I will say this, um, you know, I, my my time over the past twelve years at Design Century has been amazing, but um, moving on to something a bit bit bigger and larger, I'm super stoked. Uh, I'm going to be the uh, global head of inclusive design for Wonderman Thompson, uh, and if you're unfamiliar with Wonderman Thompson, it's a, a twenty thousand person uh, agency network across the globe. Um, they work with amazing brands from Unilever to Nestle. Uh, to so many more powerful uh, brands uh, that are household names. And, Those are big ones. And to be able to um, share the inclusive design and accessibility and disability story with those in a way that helps to continue that momentum, I'm, I'm super stoked. So CAO, is that is that becoming a more uh, popular C-suite uh, uh, position? Are we starting to see that? You know, it's inter- yes. Chief accessibility officer? Chief accessibility officer, um, Head of inclusive design, yeah. Uh, inclusive design and accessibility uh, run similar paths. Mm. Um, inclusive design is a methodology, uh, whereas accessibility is a bit of a, a measurement or a metric. But um, and you both are significant and right. Im- important. Um, and yes, we are seeing more of that. We're seeing more chief diversity officers. Officers. There are right. agencies and brands that did not have chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officers just a few years ago that have now incorporated them um, because they see the value in it. And when it comes to um, accessibility, there are there are some brands that are uh, incorporating accessibility officers and moving it into the C-suite, and more of that needs to happen. Mm. So your, uh, you briefly mentioned your blog, and I assume that people started to, started to see that you were somewhat of a, a, a somewhat of a thought leader in this space, you know, 11 years ago when you started your blog. But then also, I, I, I feel like we, we have to mention your podcast too, before, oh, yeah, before, we, before yeah. we wrap up. What's that? What was, uh, which podcast? Yeah. So the podcast, so I love travel and tourism and that, that's one of the verticals at Design Sensory that's, uh, that the agency has done extremely well at. And, and um, there is a, a, a gentleman who's also blind at the Expedia Group, and he and I were having conversations uh, a couple of years ago, and he was thinking about starting a podcast, and I was too, and and um, we both just decided, hey, let's not each do one and, and kind of re- recreate the wheel each time. Let's both 
collaborate on it and and bring something together. So we created the Explorable Podcast. And if you go to explorablepodcast.com, there are we've got two seasons worth of episodes. And what the podcast is about really is a lot about what we've been talking about today, Ben. It's it's looking at and hearing from different leaders across the travel and tourism category, from Walt Disney to the National Park Service to Visit Florida, I Love New York, uh, Amazon, Google, hearing from leaders in those organizations and how and those destinations and how they're weaving in disability inclusion and accessibility into their marketing, into mm. their destinations uh, in a way that's authentic, that's powerful, and that's bringing in tourists and locals to be able to advocate and amplify uh, the value of, of this tourism community. Uh, it's been wonderful. Uh, we've got two seasons in. Uh, stay tuned for what's next. We're, we're uh, It's still a bit up in the air, but we're looking forward to, to more. But we've got uh, many, many uh, episodes that where no matter where you are, if, you, if you're just a traveler and you want to learn more and, and you want to be an ally, or if you're a disabled traveler, but really the, the core audience for that are people at destinations that don't know where to go when it comes to moving down that path of inclusion. Um, the interviews that we have hopefully uh, can guide them down that path. Mm. Man. You've opened my my eyes and my world, not just, you know, in the past six years that I've known you, but, you know, may, maybe more today than ever before. It's um, it's it's fantastic to hear because I I think it's it's pushing it's pushing the margins uh, of inclusivity to include, you know, the the groups that everybody's familiar with now, the hot buttons. It's expanding that margin a little bit to where everybody really does ultimately get included and not discriminated against, which is, I think, uh, what America is all about <laughs> at some level. It, it is definitely. And if we want to bring it here closer to Knoxville, just real quick as kind of a, a final note, we've got uh, in Knoxville, we've got the Mayor's Council on Disability Issues that are all, um, it's, it's a small group of citizens um, and a couple of individuals at the civic level that champion disability inclusion here locally. We've got one of the Tennessee Schools for the Deaf in South Knoxville that has young people who are deaf or hard of hearing that want to learn so much, not only uh, about, um, you know, typical elementary and high school uh, education, but they want to be a part of the community. So mm. if you're a community citizen here, if you're, you know, um, an ad agency or a brand or a business, uh, consider bringing uh, some individuals from the Tennessee School for the Deaf as interned or, or yeah. em employed, right? Um, we've got the University of Tennessee that has several thousand students with disabilities uh, that are wanting to equitably not only not only be a part of the campus community, but also the entire community of the city of Knoxville and Knox County and beyond. We have parents with uh, disabled children with disabilities. We have disabled dads and moms. Um, disabled grandparents, right? And so disability is something that uh, can positively or have wonderful immersive connections because of the accessible places and spaces that Knox County and that our surrounding community has to offer, which which are wonderful. But there are also areas to improve. And so for anyone listening, if you, you want to be an ally or you have um, a disability, um, 
be proud of that and, and champion it. Or if you want to find out more, um, there are a lot of resources here locally to engage with and connect with to be able to continue that momentum and drumbeat. Awesome, Josh. I'm super excited for you with your next steps in your career. Yeah, dude. That's so exciting. The doctor. <laughs> it's great, man. Oh, yeah. It's good stuff. It's awesome. And I appreciate you uh, taking your time to come here and do this. It's very, uh, it means a lot. Well, Ben, your podcast is great. It's wonderful to hear the the variety and diversity of people that you bring <laughs> on and the amazing and fun stories. And I love you as a host. And so thanks so much for inviting me. Of course, man. Well, I hope we get to do it again sometime. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. All right. What a guy. Such an honor to have Josh in here. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Check us out on Instagram at South of Scruffy. Send us an email, southofscruffy at gmail.com. And if you want to support the show, patreon.com slash southofscruffy. We'd appreciate it. Thank you guys for being here. Take care of each other. Take care of yourselves. We'll talk to you real soon, okay? Pitchwire. Play me out.